My name is Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. If I've not yet met you, and whether you are joining us in person or you're joining us online, um, it is such a gift to be able to gather together with you to worship. This morning's call to worship comes to us from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60. And so I invite you to ponder these words of the prophet spoken over God's people. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I, the Lord your God, might be glorified. The least one shall become a family, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and in its time, I will hasten it. Isaiah envisions a day when all things will be made right. The promises of God to forgive and to redeem and to restore, and even, in groanings maybe even too deep for words, to resurrect are buried deep within the heart of Isaiah and the hearts of those who heed his prophetic words. As Easter people, this promise is buried deep within our hearts as well. Only unlike the God's people that Isaiah was speaking over, we get to celebrate. Um, in addition to waiting, in addition to hoping, we get to celebrate. We get to tell the story with our words and deeds. We get to proclaim the good news in song and with laughter and with joy because the risen Christ is the beginning of the renewed creation that Isaiah dreamt about. It's God's way, Isaiah says, of keeping his promises to us in the risen Christ. And so in gratitude to our triune God who always keeps his promises to us to redeem and to restore and to set everything right, let us join our voices with the voices of the prophets, with the voices of the people, and the, with the voices of God's people in all times and places this morning. Would you stand and sing with us?
take shelter. I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of It was a glorious day last week as we celebrated the resurrection and uh, we get to experience, thanks be to Christ, uh, glorious days uh, of, uh, again, over and over again. Um, we also acknowledge, though, that there is pain in this world and all is not right just yet. And so uh, we offer to God our prayers in hopes that his resurrection power might be at work in us. This morning for our prayers, we will uh, repeat a common refrain. It will not be on the screen, uh, but you uh, that know the Lord's Prayer might know it already. And it is, uh, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you'd like to join me in that refrain as we offer it uh, in the midst of our prayers, I'd invite you to do so. Let's pray together. Risen Christ, the good news of Easter still resounds in our hearts and minds because you bring life, you restore life, you are life itself. But even amidst the, de and even amidst the deadliest of situations, your resurrection power can still be displayed. And so we pray to you, asking for that power to be displayed in our lives and in this world. O Christ, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We give you thanks, resurrected Christ, for the beauty of our small part of the world right now, for trees and plants that testify to your resurrection by budding into this world into seemingly barren places. We also know that so much of our, your world and planet are not right, devastated in part by our irresponsibility. And so we pray that you will preserve and sustain this world we call home and help us to be good stewards of it. O oh Christ, May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We bless you, O Christ, for the opportunity we have to gather here in this place to testify to the resurrection and live in hope that you are doing a new thing. We know that many in our world risk their lives to worship you, to gather in your name, and we pray for these, your children and our brothers and sisters, and ask that you might bring about more peace in this world and draw more people into loving relationship with you. O Christ, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are grateful, O Christ, for this body of people we call Fellowship Church, for the multitude of gifts present and love shared, for generosity exhibited and care shown. We know that there are many in our community who are recovering, grieving, or anticipating something very difficult. 
And so we pray for those that we know, like Dan and Linnea, Arlene, Linda, Nancy, Suzanne, and the family of Shirley Knowles and Gail Weirmeyer. May your presence be near to them. We also know that there are many in our world and in our own community who have been hurt by the church. We pray that you might exhibit your resurrection power in healing them and drawing more people into faith communities where people can learn to love you and love neighbor and themselves. O oh Christ, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All this we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand as we continue singing? of the one who deserves glory, that we can have peace with God and peace with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. Please share a sign of Christ's peace with those that are near you as you are willing.
You guys finished so early. <laughs> Good morning, fellowship. And welcome again to worship with us here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, if you are new with us, if this is your first Sunday with us, or maybe you've been here for a couple of Sundays and you are ready to take the next step to get to know us a bit better as a community, uh, there are some cards in the back of the service. They look a little bit like this. Uh, you can fill it out. Um, you can pick it up, sorry, over at the tables near the doors. You can put your name on it and maybe your contact information, and you can take it over to the Welcome Center. And there's some great folks there who would love to meet you. They'd love to greet you by name and help you to get to know us as they get to know you. A few announcements for us this morning. Uh, first, we have a lot of things coming up next Sunday, um, April 23rd, including our congregational meeting. Uh, during our congregational meeting, if you've not seen it before, we kind of look back over the last year and celebrate the things that God has done within, among, and through us. Uh, and we look ahead to the next year. Uh, we look ahead to the elders and deacons who are joining our consistory. Uh, we look ahead to our budget. Um, and we look ahead to the good work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so uh, for us to be able to take part in that, we would love for you to be present. Um, there are some celebratory things that we want to do together, but we also want to vote together, and we need your participation for that. So we exuberantly encourage you to join us for that. Um, if you are super new um, with us um, and you've done the, the work of kind of checking us out, maybe online or in person, and now you're ready to make it official to define the relationship, so to speak, uh, we are hosting our new members class um, also this coming Sunday, um, and that will run from 10 30 until 2. It'll overlap with the congregational meeting, so you won't have FOMO. Uh, we'll love to see you there at that as well. And if none of that sways you, our lunch for both the congregational meeting and the new members class will be boar's head beef hot dogs. Like, I know, right? Yeah, exciting. <laughs> and salad for people who don't like hot dogs. So, uh, so join us for that. We'd love to see you there and celebrate with you next Sunday. Um, Secondly, during the Lenten season, we engaged um, collectively in habits of prayer and fasting and mercy. Uh, we did a lot of things to tangibly embody love of God and love of neighbor. Um, our final mercy practice was notes uh, to the imprisoned um, after Jesus' words in Matthew 25 to visit the prisoner. Uh, and we specifically wrote those notes to people in the Calvin Prison Initiative. Now, I realize that some of you were dismayed that it was Calvin and not Hope. Uh, but God loves Calvin too. So, uh, <laughs> so seriously, uh, we've gotten back most of the 90 cards that we gave out uh, that day. If you've not yet returned yours, please drop it off either today or within the next couple of days so that we can get those cards over to uh, people who are excited to hear from us. Uh, third, we actually have a couple guests with us this morning. Uh, Christiane and Cecilia are mission partners in the Netherlands. Would you join me in giving a warm fellowship welcome to Christiane and Cecilia? Would you guys stand? Uh, <laughs> uh, Christiane and Cecilia are quite literally doing God's work in the Netherlands, um, helping people to discover Christ in so many creative and innovative ways. And they're going to be around for the next couple weeks. Um, we've gotten some events planned with them so that you can get to know them and hear a little bit more of their story, uh, including next Tuesday, there will be a dinner here at Fellowship. It's in your bulletin. There's a QR code for you to sign up to let us know so that we can have food for you when you join us for the meal. Uh, 
lastly, um, last weekend was absolutely incredible. Um, beautiful weather and a number of gatherings that we hosted here at Fellowship, including our Good Friday service, which a number of you said was quite memorable for you. Uh, our excellent Easter celebration on Saturday morning with candy scramble for the kids and face painting and baby chicks and pygmy goats and bunnies and even ducks. There were ducks there too, full-grown ducks. Uh, and an incredible Easter celebration on Sunday. Uh, many thanks to the number of people. I mean, dozens of people uh, who participated in the choir, uh, our very own Jeff Heisman, and that very, very moving, moving walk through the scriptures. Uh, so many different ways that we were able to celebrate. So thank you for participating in that with us. And our Easter offering that morning raised over $3,000 for relief efforts in Turkey following the earthquake there. Yeah, you can clap for that. <laughs> um, we are so grateful to get the chance to celebrate with you every week, and especially in the week where we celebrate the rising of our Lord. Um, but we're also grateful that we get to bless our local and global mission partners through your partnership with us, through your generosity with us. Uh, so thank you for your partnership with us. And if you have not yet partnered with us financially, um, there are a couple of ways that you can do that. There are giving bowls in the back, um, and you can also give online. Um, and with that, we will dismiss our kids um, to follow Miss Betsy, who's right there in the back. And with the rest of us who, even if you identify as kids, but you're a little older than kids, you can stand and you can sing with us. Thanks.
Well, thank you, band. You can all be seated. Good morning, church. The Lord be with you. It's Eastertide, and the weather has been beautiful, hasn't it? Fitting for the season thus far, at least. Thanks be to God, and, and we get to live here. How great is that? Today, we're kicking off a new worship series. You may have noticed on the cover of your bulletins there, it's called Afterglow. And by this series, we are celebrating first that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He is the everlasting light of God. He is the glowing one. And also, at the same time, we're celebrating that we are called to be like him, that we are to be salt and light in the world, shining his light as he enables, hence the afterglow thing. You may have noticed there's a subtitle as well, and it says that his rupture repair is our life mission. And again, there's two meanings to that. The first is that Good Friday and Easter Sunday really are the single most significant rupture repair events in all of world history. And also, again, we, the followers of Jesus, have been given his mission. The scriptures call it a ministry of reconciliation. But you might be wondering, what is a rupture and what is a repair? I'll offer a loose definition of them for you briefly. A rupture is any relational disruption that causes distancing, internal hurt or external harm between God and people or between persons. And then repair is any successful effort to make right whatever has been made wrong, listening, forgiving, restoring, and so forth. And Jesus is, of course, the great example, the lead example by which we do those very things. So you can probably imagine a few scenarios. When you crush a colleague's new idea before they even finish sharing about it, that's rupture and it's in need of repair. When, after a long day at work, you bring your worst self home, rupture is likely to happen and it will be in need of repair. When I give in again to that same old sin, another frustrating failure, that's rupture and it's in need of repair. 
when someone or life itself treats you unfairly. That sure feels like rupture, doesn't it? And it's in need of repair. Without it, we're stuck in despair. By way of overview, this series that we're entering into will take us through many of the resurrection appearance stories of Jesus. You can see them up there on the screen. Today, we're going to begin by recognizing together that resurrection news is controversial. That's today's text. Next week, we'll recognize that it's missional. After that, we'll recognize that it is eerie. Mark chapter 16 is like the X-Files almost. And uh, we'll also recognize in weeks to come that it is exciting, it's personal, it's consequential, it's shareable, and it's transformational. We'll take these bit by bit in the weeks to come. But before we read today's peculiar text, I invite you to join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we are an Easter people. And even as we might find ourselves sometimes bewildered by the news and barely understanding it. I pray that you would make it so that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead would be at work in us today. Please wake us up from our sleepiness and stir in us an Easter thing, something more than interesting or entertaining. Give us instead an awakening that burns and trembles and heals or explodes us into laughter or tears or the kind of love that throbs and screams and dares the dangerous deeds. To that end, I pray this morning that your word would be our rule, your spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Jesus, our only concern. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Friends, today's text is a mere four verses in length. That's it. It's the story that comes immediately after the Easter story from last week, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. So hear these words from the book that we love. I'll share the verse and a couple comments with each one. They'll be on the screen for you behind me. Verse 11 says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. The women that they're referencing in this story are Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They are the first discoverers of the empty tomb. Thomas Aquinas has cleverly called them the apostles to the apostles. Fittingly so, because that is what they are. But as they go out on that Easter morning with a gospel message, the soldiers at the same time go out with their own message, a kind of counter message. And so the story continues, verse 12 says that when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. Interestingly, in Matthew's gospel, there's only one thing openly named that keeps people from discipleship unto Jesus. Do you know what it is? Money. The rich young ruler walks away from Jesus sad because he had many possessions. Judas betrays Jesus because of the funds he was bribed with. And now these soldiers are paid off to go out and stir up a different story than the true Easter one. Notice in the text up there, it says that there's an emphasis on them 
devising a plan, devising a plan. It doesn't say that they rejected the report of the soldiers in utter disbelief. It also doesn't say that they joyfully embraced it with faith. It simply says more accurately, they didn't really care what the true story was. They wanted to devise a plan in order to control the narrative. Which brings us to the next verse, verse 13. The Sanhedrin gives the soldiers a script. They tell them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. As you can tell, unfortunately, the response of the religious leaders in this scene is not curiosity about what really happened, nor is it any kind of openness to anything that disrupts their preferred normal. Instead, they simply offer to the soldiers a large sum of money, a story to spread, and a promise to avoid punishment because of it. The soldiers need the money or need uh, to escape punishment because sleeping on the job is a punishable offense. It's not what you do when you're a soldier. They need the money because the so story that they're supposed to tell is just downright silly. It's as flawed as it is false. The truth is, if you remember from last week, they fainted on that Easter morning. But now they're going to tell the story that they were sleeping. But if they were sleeping, then of course they don't know what happened. They were sleeping. Doesn't make sense. Verse 15. The soldiers take the money and did as they were instructed. I think it's fascinating that Matthew gives us this line as if it's normal. It's just par for the course. It's his way of saying that Easter has had resistance from the very start. It's just a fact. But ironically, the soldiers go out to spread precisely the story that they were originally hired to prevent. In the previous chapter, Matthew 27, it tells us that the soldiers were put in place by the powers that be so that the disciples wouldn't come and steal the body. And now they all agree to go and tell the world that the disciples came and stole the body. How ironic. And it concludes verse 15b saying that this is a story that has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It strikes me that few things have changed since this first Easter morning. I mean, notice how we have one significant event, two different groups that experience it, and two completely different stories about it. The soldiers, with the help of a little money in their pockets, now go on from that day forward to deny and discredit Easter. The women, on the other hand, go forward from that day ready to pivot and adapt, eager to embrace a new world order of resurrection hope. I mean, isn't it wild that these two different groups would experience the exact same event and then proceed to go and interpret it in polar opposite ways? That would never happen today, would it? <laughs> Nowadays, most people agree on most things. Isn't that true? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Maybe it's more accurate to say that wherever two humans are gathered, there you are sure to find at least three opinions. <laughs> to illustrate, I pulled a few uh, uh, um, optical illusions, that's what they're called, to demonstrate how prone we are as humans to see things differently. So take a look at the screen up here. How many of you see curved red lines? 
Yeah? You don't want to say it because you know they're actually straight. It's a trick. <laughs> How about this next one? Do you see a, a, a large monster chasing a small one? They're actually the same size. Get your fingers out and measure them there. You can see they're the same size fellas up there. How about this next one? You tell me what word you see. Huh? Good and evil? Yeah. They're both up there. Okay. How about this next one? Take a look at that middle prong. Is it attached to the hole? Yeah, it's frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> This last one's a great parallel to our Easter story. Two of them up there. Start on this side and just look at it for a minute. Is the darkness growing? How about this side? Is the light growing? So it happens with this Easter story as well. Two different stories. One of growing darkness and one of growing light. Now, to be clear, perception is not reality. It's not. It just feels like it, doesn't it? especially if you are the one beholding the thing. It's been said that often we don't see things as they really are. We see them as we are. So consider an example. Two groups, a group of Americans and a group of Russians, were both read the story of the prodigal son, Jesus' most famous story, really, Luke chapter 15. They both hear the story, and then each group is asked to report back the story that they've heard in their own words. And of course, they both basically tell the same story, the story of a wayward son who goes far away, the story of a loving father who welcomes him home, the story of a grumpy older brother who's ho-hum about it all along, right? The difference, however, is that it's only the Russians who name that there was a famine in the land. The Americans don't. There was a famine, in case you don't know. Maybe you didn't realize it either. But it's a famine in the faraway land that causes the prodigal to eventually decide to go back to the father. The Russians recognize it because some of them have experienced famine. Most Americans haven't. And so we don't even notice the detail in the story. We don't see things as they really are. We see them as we are and today's point is that resurrection news is controversial. And that's because from that very first morning, there were two very different stories about it and what happened there. Based on these polar opposite responses, I want to suggest for you today the ABCs of Easter. I realize it's cheesy, but hopefully it's memorable, okay? The ABCs of responding to Easter. We either accept that something world-changing has happened or we don't. We either bid welcome to a beginner's mind, or we don't. And finally, we either commit to live in Christ's afterglow, or we don't. We'll take these one at a time. First, we accept that something world-changing has happened, or we don't. Throughout history, and certainly on that first Easter morning, this point has made all the difference in the world, really. Consider a few examples that are maybe familiar with us that have happened throughout the ages. Somewhere in the distant past, a few creative humans discovered agriculture, and it was a shift from being hunter-gatherer types to being farmer-trader types. Some made the shift, and others didn't. Years later, some people speculated that maybe the earth actually isn't flat. Maybe it's round instead. 
And there was another shift from those who feared falling off the edge of the planet and those who freely sailed around the entire globe. Or consider the biblical idea that took humanity forever to grasp, namely that all people, not just some people, all people are created in God's image and therefore it's not okay to own people or to treat others as if they're subhuman. People resisted this truth for millennia. Some still do. Consider the invention of the printing press or the internet or the smartphone. Each of these things changed the world as we know it, and some have made the shift more successfully than others. Sociologists who track these kinds of patterns notice that whenever a new thing happens, we humans typically respond to it in a rather predictable way. There's a graph that is up on the screen here. The human response to new things suggests that when there's a new thing, a new technology, some major change in the world, a discovery, even a divine act like Easter, resurrection, some react and change right away. They're called innovators or early adapters. And then there are others who are perpetually resistant. They're called laggards. These are the ones like me who still say no every time you're prompted to enter into paperless billing. <laughs> In the Easter story, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they're the early adapters. This unforeseen thing, they didn't see it coming either, but they respond to it positively. In the Easter story, it's the religious leaders, the political leaders, and the soldiers who are the laggards. They're committed to keeping the status quo and changing nothing in the world. Now, of all the examples I gave you just a minute ago about world-changing events that have happened, nothing is more significant than Easter. Yaroslav Pelikan is a historian out of Yale University. Cool name, Yaroslav Pelikan. He says it this way. He says, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. It's his pointed way of saying that Easter really is the single most significant event that has happened in world history. It can't kind of matter. Either death has the last word in this world or it doesn't. Either Jesus is the firstborn of the dead with others sure to follow, or he isn't. Either the powers that be in this world, either they really do control all things, or maybe they don't. Easter makes all the difference. And in the same way that it is possible to deny reality, you can also deny Easter and live as if it never happened. Many people do. You could also still say that the earth is flat. You could still think that it's okay to own people. And you could still use a flip phone today. <laughs> About all kinds of things. We can either live with our heads in the sand or we can accept a new reality. And that's the first of the ABCs of Easter. That we either accept that something world-changing has happened or we don't. It brings us to the second of the ABCs of Easter. The B stands for bidding welcome to a beginner's mind. To be honest, I wish the word propaganda began with a letter B because propaganda is what's really happening in the Easter story that we just read. Did you notice? 
we know what propaganda is, right? I mean, here's a definition of it for us on the screen. It is selective information, especially of a biased or misleading nature used to publicize and promote a particular cause or point of view. It's propaganda, and we're all too familiar with it. These are a few different examples that have happened throughout the past, and they demonstrate for us that propaganda usually works because of a handful of things. First, it manipulates our emotions, especially fear and anger. You can notice up there a flag burning, a ship sinking, and a boot crushing a church. It is emotionally provocative. It also oversimplifies everything. There's no room for nuance in propaganda. We prefer, with propaganda, we prefer a simple lie over a complex truth. Propaganda also confirms popular biases. It tells us the stuff that we want to hear, like we're good and they're bad and we can do it kinds of things. And finally, propaganda pushes an agenda. Most importantly, propaganda pushes the agenda of controlling the narrative, whatever is happening. And this is what happens with the Easter text. The propaganda of Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15, are precisely that. It's scandalous and simple. It confirms biases, and it pushes an agenda. The trouble with propaganda is that it basically is anti-thinking. It prefers certainty over curiosity, assimilation over inquiry. My spring break reading, a.k.a. Holy Week reading this past week, was Think Again, a book by a guy named Adam Grant. The subtitle of it is The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And he puts it in graph form for us over here about what I know. The smallest circle, the little white dot down there, is the representation of the things I know I know. The next larger circle is the things I actually know. A little bit larger than that, the gray circle there is the things I think I know, but I'm probably wrong. And then the largest circle are the things I don't know, including the things I don't even know that I don't know. This is probably why propaganda works so well. First, because we think we know so much. And second, because we actually know so little. In the book, Adam Grant offers two different thought cycles that are also up here on the screen for you, two different ways that we respond to things, and they perfectly illustrate these two cycles that happen in response to the Easter story. The women take the rethinking cycle. They come with humility. They go into doubt and curiosity and discovery, and that is its own adventure. The soldiers take the other cycle, which is the overconfident cycle. They start with pride. They move into conviction. They experience confirmation and desirability biases, which then give them validation, which puts them right back to even more pride, keeping the story as they want it to be. One group ends up being willing to learn and grow and adapt. The other group is certainly not. There's a cartoon that uh, demonstrates this for us. It's in a boxing arena, and the announcer says, and in this corner, still undefeated, Frank's long-held beliefs. (laughs) 
If you read the gospel stories again, I think you'll find that Jesus seems to have been most interested in the people with the most open minds. I mean, his frequently spoken first word of public ministry, frequently recorded first word, is repent, metanoia, which literally means to turn around or to change your mind. He said that the kingdom of heaven belongs not to the experts, the ones who already know everything. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the children, the always curious ones. The people who had the best time with Jesus were the ones who were willing to change. The woman at the well, the thief on the cross, the disciples, and so many more. The people who had the worst time with Jesus were the ones who were most stuck in their own ways, unwilling to adjust. Which brings us back to the second of the ABCs of Easter, which is to bid welcome to a beginner's mind. What if in your relationship with God or in a broken relationship with someone else, what if you did that? What if you let go of old dead certainties? What if you got curious about the meaning and the impact of an empty tomb? What if you sought to start afresh in God's Easter world. Well, how do we do that, you might say? Good question. It brings us to the last of the ABCs of Easter. To review, first, we either accept that something world-changing has happened, or we don't. Second, we bid welcome to a beginner's mind, or we don't. But then finally, and importantly, we commit to live in Christ's afterglow, or we don't. The Colossian Forum in Grand Rapids is one of our best ministry friends. Perhaps you've heard of them. Their mission is to accept conflict as an opportunity for discipleship, growth, and witness. You can read in there, rupture and repair. I want to add that this is not to say that conflict itself is desirable, as if it is some kind of good in and of itself. That's a little bit more like masochists, right? <laughs> Conflict is a bit like suffering. It just happens. And what matters is how we respond to it. And one of the tools in the toolbox of the Colossian Forum is a thing called Wayfinder. It's printed in your bulletin, and there's a copy up on the screen there as well. It is a way for us to live in Christ's afterglow. Wayfinder suggests five G's, five different G's, and this is not a fancy cell phone service, by the way. It is five short phrases that all begin with the letter G. And we'll dive into these in the weeks to come as a way of being for each of us in our various conflicted relationships. But today I want to start by suggesting that Jesus is always the lead example. And in this case especially, he goes first. And we are invited to follow in his footsteps, to live in his afterglow, to use our phrase for the series. Five G's. Uh, that we can experience together are to go toward. That's the first one. And you may notice that in salvation history, we Christians call this Christmas or the incarnation. This is where when the world was at its worst, God did not run away and leave us all to our own devices. God did not get out some kind of cosmic hammer and smash us. God goes toward. God takes on flesh for us and for our salvation. And we also can learn to go toward like Jesus did. The second of the five G's is to go Godward. 
This is what Jesus did, especially when things became very, very difficult. He went to God in prayer in Gethsemane and in the high priestly prayer of John 17, where Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. He prays for the whole world. And in the midst of these deep, deep conflicts, Jesus says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He goes Godward in the midst of the conflict, and we can too. The third of the five G's is to get curious. I've shared this with you before. I think it's fascinating. But if you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus was asked approximately 180 questions. But he asked over 300 of them. And Jesus only directly answers less than 10. Do the math, and I've done it for you. You'll find that basically Jesus is 40 times more likely to ask a question than to give a direct answer to one. He's curious, and he's particularly curious about people. Which brings us to the fourth of the five G's, which is to go deep. And Jesus did this regularly. Jesus was interested in the source, not the symptom. In fact, it's his teaching and his living that have taught us that the heart of the matter is often a matter of the heart. And so Jesus would ask these penetrating questions as a way of going deep. Why are you afraid? Mark chapter 4. Do you even see this woman? Luke chapter 7. Do you want to get well? John chapter 5. Over and over and over again, Jesus is trying to find the story behind the presenting issue. He goes deep, and we can too. And the fifth of the five G's is to get right. To get right. My favorite form of theology is atonement theology, which literally means at one mint. And maybe you don't know, there is no formal doctrine of atonement because there's a diversity of ideas about it, and each one of them matters. There's multiple models or theories, and we get the whole picture by holding them all together. More broadly, my favorite way of saying it is simply that Jesus came to make right whatever is wrong. And we can learn to walk in his footsteps as well. We do it in his name and by his power and for his glory. We live in his afterglow. Those are the five G's of the wayfinder. And in the weeks to come, we'll take a deeper look at how we can live those out uh, in our own daily lives. In fact, that's the application of today's sermon. It's an odd one. Come back in the future weeks and we'll practice these things together. But for now, if you're willing to accept that something world-changing has happened on that first Easter, and if you're willing to bid welcome to a beginner's mind, especially the possibility of rupture and repair in Jesus' name, then I invite you to join Jesus in going toward, going Godward, getting curious, going deep, and getting right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you please stand if you're able and join us to sing our closing song.
friends, two reminders. First, remember that there is a listening session for the congregational meeting immediately after the service in the adult wing. And second, remember that Easter really is the single greatest instance of rupture and repair in all of world history. And we are invited to live in Christ's afterglow. So as you go from this place, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace. Thank mm-hmm. you.